All right, open your Bibles to that passage, John chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. We're going to look at verses 14, 14 to 21 this morning as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. That's our text. The topic, the disciples make little progress as they row against the storm. The title of our message, Rowing Nowhere Fast. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, what a blessing it is to be here probably a greater blessing than we know. You've promised in your word to be with your church, gathered together. You are in those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. We have your word open in front of us. We're expecting a great work to take place. We understand that your greatest work is changing us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we want to yield ourselves to that today. Speak to us about how we are to be more like Jesus and the power that's available to us and within us to do just that. I pray that we would throw off things of the flesh and uh, our own ideas and, and be concentrated, Lord, on your direction and purpose for our life. Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, strive with them, share with them, convict and convince them, Lord, of your coming. Show them that you saved them from their sin on the cross at Calvary. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, Amen. He called himself the masked magician. He was featured in a series of television specials exposing the secrets behind classic magic tricks. He walked on water across a swimming pool to reveal how Chris Angel might have done it. The secret was a series of clear and therefore unseen plexiglass steps just below the surface. There are at least two ways a person can walk on water. I don't recommend either one of them. This is a quote from a science article. Some fluids have enough viscosity to be able to support the weight of a human body under the right conditions. Oobleck, O-O-B-L-E-C-K, is a mixture of cornstarch in water. Its viscosity increases if the pressure applied on it increases. The faster we move in this fluid, the harder it is to overcome the friction force. This property of oobleck can easily be exploited if we move over its surface with enough speed. A person walking over it at a brisk pace can easily move through without any fear of sinking due to the high amount of reaction force from the fluid. However, on the other hand, if a person doesn't move quick enough, the oobleck will swallow him like quicksand. So I'd be happy to donate the cornstarch if you want to donate your pool, and we'll see if you can walk on water. I'll film the whole thing for you. You can stay afloat on water if you move fast enough. You wouldn't be walking on the water, however, because you'd have to be moving at 100 feet per second. Jesus walked on water. It wasn't across a small pool, but on a raging sea. Plexiglass was not invented till 1933. It wasn't dosed with oobleck. He wasn't running 100 feet per second. Jesus came to the aid of his disciples and simultaneously illustrated how they should live as rowers. The New Testament uses athletic illustrations to help us understand our relationship with Jesus. The Apostle Paul was a big fan of the Olympics especially boxing and running. I would submit that rowing be considered another biblical athletic illustration. It's a really good one, 
I read this on the blog of a Christian who is part of a competitive rowing crew. The rower's back is toward where they're heading. Their eyes are on the coxswain, their ears are open to his voice, and they trust the hand that's on the rudder. My Lord asks only that I hold firmly, but also stroke purposefully my one oar. He's my coxswain, but much more, who sees what's ahead. I find stability and strength by the ability to see in my wake God's past faithfulness to me. His goodness and mercy have followed me. Really good illustration. Your back is to where you're going. You don't really know, in a sense, where you're going. You have to listen to the voice and trust the rudder work of the coxswain, who in our case is Jesus. To paraphrase Dory, just keep rowing, just keep rowing, 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 rowing. I'll organize my comments around two points. Row, row, row without any hesitating. And number two, row, row, row with all hastening. Let's talk about hesitating in verses 14 through 17. It's a standard plot device for two or more characters to recall the same event differently. The song Summer Nights in Greece is a good example. Took her bowling in the arcade. We went strolling, drank lemonade. We made out under the dock. We stayed up till 10 o'clock. Which is it? It depends on who you're listening to. Matthew, Mark, and John each recount this miracle, but they are all different. Not contradictory, just different. John's account is the briefest. One commentator pointed out, John doesn't tell us that Jesus sent the multitude away or that he was praying on the mountain. He omits Mark's comment that Jesus saw the disciples straining at the oars or that he intended to pass them by when he came to them on the water. He doesn't say that the disciples thought they were seeing a ghost, although he does say that they were frightened. He doesn't mention Peter's walking on the water. As readers of God's word, the challenge is to know the entire event without ignoring each author's unique perspective. These guys were not simply telling a story. There was purpose in the details they included and omitted. God the Holy Spirit inspired John to edit his account and place it exactly where he did in his gospel. And so while we want to understand as much as we can about this episode uh, from the other gospels and putting all three of them together, Uh, We have to understand that each gospel writer had his own unique message that he was trying to draw out. Uh, You know, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we need to know. Even if we have all three accounts and read them simultaneously, we still don't know everything that there is to know about that night. Uh, And so uh, we need to research this and then, in a sense, keep our mind focused on where we're at to draw out Uh, the principles that that writer has for us. And so verse 14, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, these are the 5,000 men plus many, many women and children who had been fed miraculously. They said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. They weren't wrong. Their understanding, however, was incomplete. Jesus is not a prophet like others in the Bible. We are told in the Revelation, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy is to testify of Jesus Christ and reveal him. He is the source and the fulfillment of all prophecy. 
And so while he fulfills the role of this prophet that Moses said would come in the end times as their Messiah, he is not just another prophet. Prophecy is about him and he is the source of it. Jesus is not a king like David or any of the earthly men who sat on David's throne. He is the king of whom we read in the Revelation, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. He is the one king, the true king, over all the kingdoms and peoples of the earth. The crowds did not factor the cross upon which Jesus must die to deliver them spiritually from Satan. In addition to prophet and king, the Messiah would be priest, and he would offer himself as the once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of the world so that men would not perish but have everlasting life. You don't make Jesus king. He is king. You can submit to him or not, but he is king. When Joshua was contemplating the battle of Jericho, he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So the man said, No. What do you do now? <laughs> Luckily, he filled it in. He said, But as commander of the army of the Lord, I now have come. It was a theophany. It was an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament before uh, he was incarnate as a man. And it says here that Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And he said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? So you see, Joshua went from, are you for us or against us, to a position of worship in which he simply waited on instruction from this individual who he recognized as God. The United States of America, land that we love, is Jesus for us or against us? The answer is no. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is commander of the host of the Lord. Our response is to recognize that, bow at his feet, and wait further instruction. It is wonderfully true that if God is for us, who can be against us? Dialogue from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe might help us get a handle on this. Is Aslan quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion, said Susan. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The Lord is for us, but in ways that we cannot fully fathom. Whether it is smooth or storm, we worship him. Verse 16, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat and went over the sea, toward Capernaum, and it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. The other accounts say that Jesus compelled them. It doesn't mean that they argued with him and that he had to force them to leave. John is telling the story, emphasizing that the disciples didn't hesitate, but they obeyed the Lord who sent them ahead without him. Hesitation can be deadly. Law enforcement knows that. You can find example after example of an officer or a deputy reluctant to use force when it's necessary to, uh, for their own safety. Fear of an out-of-context iPhone video going viral is literally costing blue lives. And uh, hesitation uh, because of what comes next. Adam and Eve were the first to hesitate. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now, she wouldn't have gone through that process if she had just obeyed the Lord. The Lord told her to have nothing to do with that tree, don't eat it, and yet here she is looking at it, thinking about it, and then eating from it. In her hesitation to obey, humanity was lost. Don't hesitate when sin is involved. We, uh, you know, uh, we think, well, I can go this far because there's a fence. And then you find there's a hole in the fence. And you say, well, then I can go out into the street because there's a crosswalk. And so you go across the crosswalk. Eventually you get hit by a car because you're out in the middle of nowhere where you shouldn't be, thinking that you have plenty of uh, time to repent. Don't hesitate when it comes to sin. If you're contemplating some sin this morning, or if you're involved in some sin, repent, get out of it before it's too late. It will ruin you. It will destroy you. It will kill your family, uh, whatever it is. And so take that to heart. Don't hesitate. Be like Joseph in the Old Testament when uh, Potiphar's wife wanted to lie with him carnally. He fled immediately, ran naked out of the house. He'd rather be seen naked out running around like a wild man than be uh, caught in sin. The Apostle Paul refused to hesitate. God had to slam doors of ministry in his face to keep Paul from constantly going forward. Hey, hey, guys, let's go. We're leaving. Where are we going? We're anywhere. Then the Lord would slam a door. Finally, the Lord said, okay, come to Macedonia, and I'll let you minister there. He permitted Paul to be arrested and imprisoned to stop him long enough to write a good portion of the New Testament. Paul knew that if he hesitated, people would remain lost. In verses 18 through 21, row, row, row your boat with all hastening. Their boat could not get over the wave. Talking about the Andrea Gale in the movie, The Perfect Storm. The combined star power of George Clooney, Mark Wahlberg, and John C. Riley was not enough to propel the boat. The sea took them. The great thing about YouTube, you just go to YouTube and say, uh, perfect storm wave scene or something like that. It comes up a minute and a half. You watch the boat. Pretty good special effects. And, uh, and then I, and, but I sit there and I think, what kind of a nerd puts this stuff on? <laughs> Who sits there and thinks, I'm going to be the guy that puts the perfect storm wave scene on and they'll subscribe to me. Or, I mean, it's crazy, but I, you know, hey, how about this? You don't have to watch the whole movie. Years ago, to make an illustration, I used to have to, you know, get a DVD or a videotape uh, and, and, you know, uh, and, and put it in my player and fast forward back and forth and try and take notes to find a scene. Finally, you give up. Just be kind and rewind and be done with it, you know, so. Verse 18, the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Do you ever get overwhelmed in your reading by the mastery of a single phrase or sentence? The sea arose. That's a stunning use of words. Matthew says they were tossed by the waves. Not bad, but familiar. Sometimes when you're watching something, maybe television, do you ever guess what the dialogue is going to be? I do, and if it's what I guessed, I'm mad because I know that the author didn't put any time into it. Sometimes it, it, they, you know, surprise you. Mark says the wind was against them. 
Now that's a little bit more descriptive. But John personifies the Sea of Galilee. Like a fell foe, the water rose as it was conscious of them. This far, no farther. This is as far as you go. Row all you want. I'm your enemy and I've stopped you. A fishing boat from the first century was discovered in 1986 on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee in Israel. They call it the Jesus boat, so you'll watch the video, although the only connection between it and the Lord is its first century date. Uh, it's fine. I, I think it's great that they call it that, and, and uh, it's a good little uh, documentary. It gives us a look at the style of the boat the boys were desperately rowing that day. 27 feet long, 7.5 feet wide, with a maximum height of just over 4 feet, constructed primarily of cedar planks joined together by pegged mortise and tenon joints and nails. The boat is shallow drafted with a flat bottom, allows it to get very close to the shore while fishing. However, the boat is composed of 10 different wood types, suggesting either a wood shortage uh, or that the boat was made of scrap wood and had undergone extensive and repeated fixes. The boat was rowable with four staggered rowers and also had a mast allowing the fishermen to sail the boat. The boat in our story may have been similarly patched together, barely seaworthy. Think Orca, Quint's boat in the movie Jaws. Uh, do you ever think of that boat as being a piece of junk? Uh, it just the reality of it, I mean, it's, it's some fisherman's boat at the shore. It, you know, it, it, uh, it wasn't, they didn't rent it for the day. It wasn't a sightseeing boat. See the Sea of Galilee, glass bottom boat or anything like that. It was a working fishing boat. And as such, it was probably barely held together. Dad, are you sure this isn't going to say, oh, we'll be fine. We're not going that far out anyway. Not a problem. And, and uh, you know, there they were on this creepy boat. Four men at a time could row. Just happens that there were four fishermen on that crew. Andrew, Peter, James, and John have been introduced to us as owning fishing businesses. You've got to think they did all the rowing, right? I mean, would you want Matthew, the tax collector, on an oar in a life-threatening situation? Let's share equally in the rowing duties. Yeah, let's not and say we did. Now, I can't imagine Matthew or Judas wanting to row, but I can imagine Peter saying, oh, no. <laughs> yeah, you guys, we, we can't even row, you know. So, anyways, just give you a picture of, of just what was going on at the time. Verse 19. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were afraid. Your Bible may use the word heights in place of sea. One commentator said, so it is in the Hebrew. It means the high waves. That is, he walks upon the waves of the ocean when lifted up by storm. This is spoken of here as proof of the greatness of God. And the meaning of all is that he is seen in the storm, in the heaving ocean, when the heavens are black with tempest, and when the earth is convulsed. It may be added here that the Lord Jesus walked amidst the howling winds on the lake and thus gave evidence that he was God. Another commentator said, this is a very impressive image. God not only walks upon the waters, but when the sea runs mountains high, he steps from billow to billow in his almighty and essential majesty. We can only wonder, and that's all it is, it's speculation, if one of the disciples was reminded of these words of Job. God treads on the waves of the sea. Chapter 9, verse 8. 
Can you imagine stuck out there the way they were, rowing, wondering what was going on, the boat being bashed, uh, you know, eight guys that don't know anything about the sea and four guys doing all the work. What a blessing it would have been for somebody to say, hey, uh, you know, Job says, God treads on the waves of the sea. Before they even see Jesus and to know that they are seen by their heavenly father. Believers in Jesus Christ can be comforted by him through his written word, the Bible. When believers in the newly formed church in the city of Thessalonica were dying, the Apostle Paul didn't want them to sorrow as others who have no hope. So he described the resurrection and rapture of the church to them and said, Therefore comfort one another with these words. Have you been comforted by a scripture? Have you been calmed by the word of God? Uh, we sang about peace this morning. Found the peace that passes all understanding simply because you knew God had whispered to you. If you are in a storm, likely God has already spoken to you through his word. Sometimes we don't recognize it. And we need somebody to help us. Good part of my counseling over the years, uh, once I realized I had nothing valuable to say, uh, was asking people what God had already said to them. That may seem strange, but about 99% of the time, they say, well, nothing really, but there is this one scripture that I've heard 17 times this week, and, and I am wor wondering about it. And then we'll look at it together, and the Lord will minister. And, and you know, your situation may not change, uh, you, you know, but your attitude towards it, uh, well, attitude's not even the right word, just your reception of it is different because you know that the Lord treads on the waves of that storm with you. And so if you're in a storm right now or if you're next time you are, ask the Lord to speak to you. It's great to talk to people. You don't want to talk to me. Uh, I'll be happy to talk with you, but you won't be happy afterwards. And it's not that I mean. It's just you'll wonder if I'm serious uh, about it. You know, but anyway, uh, but talk to the Lord and let the Lord show you from his word. Let him encourage you and strengthen you from his word. Warren Wiersbe writes, he says, hope is not a sedative, it is a shot of adrenaline, a blood transfusion. Like an anchor, our hope in Christ stabilizes us in storms, but unlike an anchor, our hope moves us forward, it does not hold us back. God's word is alive, it's powerful, and it is altogether true. It has been validated by the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he is God, and he is God in human flesh. He is the God-man who saves all who believe in him. If you're not a Christian here this morning, Jesus Christ came so that you might be saved, so that you might have eternal life, avoiding hell and uh, uh, getting into heaven. There is no other source of spiritual hope. Do you ever think about that? Jesus is the singular source of spiritual hope for all people in all time. Non-believers cannot have hope in this life and certainly not in the next. If they have what they call hope, it is a false hope based on false promises from their false religion or philosophy. Eulogies for non-believers are the epitome of false hope. You want to know false hope? Go to a funeral and listen to the eulogies of people and you'll find out in three seconds if that person was a Christian or not. When people start getting up and saying, well, he's in a better place now, or heaven needed her, or one more angel in heaven, 
Those are lies that come from the language of false hope. Buddhists and most Hindus believe in reincarnation. Physical body dies, but the soul comes back in another body because you haven't achieved what you're supposed to achieve. I don't know about you. Do you want to come back? I've had enough trouble the first time around, right? I mean, you know, as you wake up in the morning and think, hey, what a great hope. Tomorrow I might die and come back. You know you don't always come back as a human being. That's part of their religion. You can come back as an animal or something else. After my Uncle Dan, Daniel Romanello, after Uncle Dan died, uh, periodically my mom would point to a crow and tell me that that was Uncle Dan. It's funny today, but it was scary and creepy when I was a kid. Because I thought, I don't want to come back as a crow or a buzzard or an eagle or a caterpillar or anything like that. And as a crow, how am I going to work off what I need to work off to finally get reincarnated as something else? At least if I got reincarnated as a fly, I'd only lived 48 hours or however long flies live. And then I could come back and do something. Maybe I, you know, I don't know. Who remembers the short-lived 1960s television show, My Mother the Car? Anybody? Steve? Okay. Do you know that? Hey, we're all we're old. It's no, no big deal. Old is, people say age is a state of mind. That's a lie. Uh, it's, it's your age. <laughs> My mother, the car, a man whose deceased mother is reincarnated as an antique car, communicates with him through the car radio. Is that your dream? Is it my dream to come back as a Maserati and talk to the owner through the radios and just say, I could never own a car, but now I am one? <laughs> no, it's, it's ridiculous. Now let's get back to Jesus' wave walking. Think of how waves toss those crab boats in the deadliest catch. Jesus is in his human body. This is no transfiguration. He, he's, not, you know, he's not like the silver surfer hovering across the waves. He's in his body, body just like ours, the Jesus boat is three or four miles from shore. The average person takes one hour to walk that distance on flat land. Jesus walked it against the storm. He wasn't going 100 feet per second. It would take him quite a while to get out to them walking on water. And as I said, he didn't hover over the sea, so I have to guess that he was wet. Remember, too, that in the verses which precede, Jesus had gone up into a mountain. He had to first descend. And remember, too, it was nighttime and he hadn't slept. And prior to that, he'd had a long day of ministry feeding 5,000 people, maybe up to 15,000, including men, and, or men, women, and children. I'm going to say something that is not obvious, but I like to find these portions of Scripture. The way to, that Jesus came to them was romantic. You probably never heard of the group, the Grassroots. Anybody heard of the Grassroots? A lot of my friends in the back row there. I should think you guys would be up front where you can hear. But uh, their 1969 hit record, I'd wait a million years. I'd wait a million years, walk a million miles, cry a million tears. I'd swim the deepest sea, climb the highest hill just to have you near me. That kind of romance, right? It's like any obstacle. You don't like the grassroots? Okay, how about the iconic Princess Bride? Wesley must rescue his true love, Princess Buttercup, 
from the odious Prince Humperdinck. Wesley overcomes obstacles such as the flame burst, the snow and sand, or the snow sand rather, and the ruses, rodents of unusual size, which he doesn't believe in initially. There were other ways Jesus could have helped. He could have spoken from the mountaintop and the sea would have become instantly calm. Anybody doubt that? That he could have just spoken to the wind and the waves as he had before? Could have miraculously transported from the mountain to the boat. His father wanted him to walk out to that boat uh, across the sea. He came to them in the only way we would recognize as love conquering any obstacles. But he said to them, verse 20, it is I, do not be afraid. John left out them thinking they saw a ghost and that that was the source of their fear. He wants us to understand that all of our fears are overcome when we hear Jesus say to us in our storm, it is I. It is I could be translated as I am and be a claim of deity and equality with God the Father. It is I, I am. How's that for conquering your fears in a storm? I mean, would you have to hear anything else? Would you even care about the next wave if Jesus was there saying, it is I, you know me. I am God the creator. You're in good hands. Verse 21, then they willingly received him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. As I said, God the Father permitted this storm to reveal things about his son, our savior, that could not have otherwise been known. Every storm can be a perfecting storm. F.B. Meyer wrote, Ah, afflicted one, your disabilities were meant to unite with God's enablings, your weakness to mate with his power. God's grace is at hand, sufficient, and at its best when human weakness is most profound. Appropriated and learn that those who wait on God are stronger in their weakness than the sons of men in their stoutest health and vigor. Yeah, right? Unless it's you that's weak. Have you ever really, really thought about that? Have you thought, I need a weakness? Of course, we don't. We already have plenty. But you know, have you ever woke up and your parents say, Lord, I need a weakness. I see you did amazing things with the Apostle Paul. And he had a thorn in his flesh. And he prayed that it would go away. And you said, no, you need that to, to understand grace. Lord, Give me a thorn in my flesh. You ever prayed that? Maybe you have. I'm not saying one way or the other. But generally speaking, we don't really like weakness. We like strength. We eat the right foods. We go to the gym. We we have our blood taken. We have colonoscopies. (laughs) Uh, We we do all kinds of things to, to remain strong and vibrant and alive. We say that age is just a state of mind when I've already proven it's not. Yeah, it's a state of a decrepit mind is what it is. It's of losing your mind. But, uh, you know, and and so God says, no, no, no. In this church age in which we live, in your weakness, I am made strong. I think sometimes we struggle because we don't want Jesus to get on that boat with us. We don't want to be on that boat. But we have to receive him as he comes to us and believe that our weaknesses are his strengths. Jesus didn't get into the boat until they received him. And then immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. It was a miracle within a miracle. Here's a a thought, just something to uh, encourage you, I hope. 
You gain insight by reducing what you've read to its minimum. Try this. Maybe you do this already. Maybe it's not so insightful, but uh, it's a refresher for you. But when you read something, especially in the Bible, try to reduce it to some basic thoughts, uh, maybe one sentence summary of what is happening. Here's the one I came up with for this episode. The disciples kept rowing in the storm until Jesus came to them and they supernaturally arrived at their destination. Sounds pretty good. And then think about it. We are disciples. We encounter storms in our lives. We are told in many places to persevere, to endure, or to keep on rowing. Jesus comes for us in resurrection and rapture of the church, at which time we will be immediately safe at our destination, which is heaven. And so there we are on that little boat, in a sense, just like the disciples were, in a spiritual sense. One day you're going to be rowing in the storm, whether it's a storm of disease or accident, you're headed towards imminent death, or just the storm of the world that we live in. I'd say we live in a pretty stormy place with what's going on in the world right now. The news people are fascinated that we're headed towards nuclear war. It's like they can't help themselves. You know, they're salivating, hoping some nuke will explode somewhere. It's stormy around here, but you know, one day that storm is going to end pretty quickly for us because we're going to either be uh, taken home to be with the Lord in death or he's going to rapture us, and it'll happen immediately. The Apostle Peter was rowing the Jesus boat. He says in one of his epistles that we can hasten or accelerate the Lord's return as we live lives of endurance serving him. It's the greatest row on earth. The disciples were never alone in the storm. Whether Jesus was on the mountain or the waves, he was with them. You cannot ever be alone, certainly not in a storm. You need to quit waiting for Jesus to show up. He, even though he's not, you know, in, it's hard because it's an illustration, but we say, you know, Jesus, we say, well, he was with them when he was in the boat. No, he was with them when he was walking on the sea. He was with them when he was on the mountain. He was with them in eternity past when he saw all that as God. You cannot be alone. You can be lonely. I've been lonely. That's my fault because the Holy Spirit lives within me. He doesn't go on vacation. He's not taking a nap. I, I, I'm never alone. And, and so uh, get out of that mindset and quit struggling with being lonely and realize that the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. A.W. Tozer wrote, The knowledge we are never alone calms the troubled sea of our lives and speaks peace to our souls. Keep rowing and see God's mercy and loving kindness in your wake.